Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Um, thanks for the invite to come and talk to you. What I'll try and do is really uh, listed here. I'll try and explain what the project is that I, I uh, coordinate, which is DMDD, Deciphering the Mechanisms of Developmental Disorders. Bit of a mouthful. I'll say something about who we are, what, we're, what our goals are, what we're trying to do, and how we do it. And I hope through that, that will give you an idea of why open data is important in our project. So who are we? We are a consortium of uh, research laboratories uh, throughout the UK and also including a laboratory in Vienna. Uh, and we're funded on a five-year project by the Wellcome Trust to do research to try and help in uh, identifying and understanding the genetic causes of developmental disorders or birth defects. And through that, we also hope to get a better understanding of how normal embryos develop. So those are our twin goals. How do we do that? We actually do that not by studying humans, but by, by studying mice. And I'll uh, have to backtrack a little to explain why we do that. So in these times with newspaper headlines regularly about uh, advances in medical research with the human genome being sequenced, uh, more, most recently uh, discussions about the ethics of three-parent babies and the constant refrain now in, in medical circles of the uh, next step will be developing personalised medicines where therapies are designed for our own individual genetic makeup. It's easy to forget that there's an awful lot we still don't understand about our genes and our genetic makeup and how they impact on us. We know the genome has been sequenced and we have about 20,000 genes in the human genome that contain all the information for building us and maintaining us. All of that has been decoded. Um, but that doesn't mean we actually understand what the code says. There are an awful lot of those genes. We know very little about what they do. Even for ones that we know a lot about, um, we know uh, only patchy accounts of how they are coordinated, how they're regulated, and how they work together. So there's an awful lot we don't understand. One of the things we do know is that alterations to that genetic code or mutations can have a, a serious impact on the ability of that information um, to be used. As you might expect, if you alter the a piece of code, you alter its meaning. Uh, mutations that change the sequence of the code in our DNA can either alter the function of that gene in some important way, or indeed they can block its function completely. Mutations happen. They either happen spontaneously as cells divide, or they happen under the impact <coughs> of environmental uh, agents like uh, excessive exposure to the sun or exposure to carcinogens uh, and chemicals in the environment. So there are a variety of causes of mutations, and they are happening. And so sequencing of genomes has told us that we all actually carry lots of mutations. And some of those mutations we know cause important diseases. 
So this is a list of uh, a number of uh, common, uh, relatively common genetic diseases. Um, the first one, cystic fibrosis, uh, many people will have heard of. Um, and that's interesting because we know exactly the mutations that cause cystic fibrosis. And that means by knowing that, we can uh, design tests to screen for whether individuals carry those mutations. Duchenne muscular dystrophy, we also know what causes that. And through knowing that, uh, that's led to the development of research uh, which might lead to treatments that um, can be offered to sufferers of uh, muscular dystrophy. And there are a whole range of others that you will have heard of. And these range, these mutations here range from individual mutations in the code through to things like uh, DeGeorge syndrome and Down syndrome. These are complex diseases that actually come from rearrangements of large chunks of code, whole chromosomes or portions of chromosomes rather than individual genes. I've said we all carry mutations and that it turns out that we all carry one or two mutations that in any other circumstances would have killed us by now. Um, we are saved many times, not every time, we are saved many times because we have two copies of every gene. And for most of them, as long as you have one copy that's okay, it doesn't matter so much if the other copy is mutated. What becomes a problem is when those, uh, those are inherited by our children and if they inherit both copies that are mutated. So we carry many mutations, far more than we, uh, far more than we think. They can cause genetic disease that affects us as adults. But there are also a whole bunch of uh, diseases and abnormalities that affect uh, babies um, that are detected as babies are born. These are congenital abnormalities or birth defects. And this is just uh, a figure I've taken from the World Health Organization. It's a pie chart which shows uh, deaths throughout the world in 2015 of uh, babies, new, newly born babies. And actually, as you might expect, thinking about that, the biggest cause of that are going to be things to do with um, um, the conditions un under which uh, uh, mothers are giving birth. Um, and so um, that accounts for the largest proportion, nearly a million deaths of babies born in uh, poor and unsanitary conditions leading to uh, sepsis. The segment here we can see, these are babies that are born and uh, die from congenital disease, genetic, uh, mostly genetic diseases. Uh, these are errors that have occurred. These are mutations that they carry which have caused errors in the way they have developed as embryos, um, such that when they're born, uh, um, they're incompatible with life, either shortly after birth or in the period uh, uh, as, as they begin to grow. The commonest of those are congenital heart defects, defects affecting the function and the structure of the heart that develops in the embryo. That accounts for roughly one in every hundred births. Not all of those are, are um, cause death, of course. Uh, modern surgery can now treat a great many of those, but they remain a huge uh, medical and social burden. Um, 
Another common source of defect are neural tube defects, uh, such as uh, spina bifida. So our challenge really is to understand what are the genes that cause these uh, birth defects. Can we identify them? If we can identify them, we can perhaps design screens to identify whether people carry them. And if we know what they are, we can also uh, think about research to develop uh, possible treatments that may ameliorate their conditions. There's another set of genetic diseases that are often forgotten about, and these are so-called rare diseases, which, as their name suggests, are extremely rare. They're defined in various ways in different countries, but roughly speaking, these are diseases where the incidence is less than 1 in 2,000, and often a lot less. So that sounds like these are not terribly important, but actually there's an awful lot of them. There's up to 7,000 different uh, rare diseases. So you, when, I, when you add up the total number of people who suffer from rare diseases, it's enormous. It's estimated 300 million people worldwide, or 7% of the population of the UK at some point will suffer from a rare the, the effects of a rare disease. And in most cases, there is no treatment known for these rare diseases, and we don't know the genetic basis of them. Many of those, again, affect babies or young children, and a proportion of them cause uh, babies to die um, shortly after birth. So rare diseases are also another burden, uh, another health burden, and another black area where we know nothing about, uh, or very little, about their basis. So how do we identify disease-causing genes? The answer is... In principle, very simple. We simply need to correlate whether uh, we need to correlate the presence of a particular mutation in a gene with the uh, with the disease itself. And of course, that's what clinical geneticists try to do. There are limitations in that make their job extremely difficult. Clearly you need to study in some way or other the DNA, the genomes of, of individual affected people to identify the mutations. That's a, that's a big task. You need to do this for a large number of people to enable you to establish a correlation that, that makes sense. And you always have that background that we all carry lots of mutations. And so seeing through the cloud, if you will, of that background of mutations to identify the correct one is a challenge. The alternative is to do this by experimentation, which brings us to why we uh, study mice. So it turns out that uh, if we make the assumption, which uh, all research shows is a pretty good assumption for what we're trying to study, that the development of the mouse embryo is in broad details, very similar and driven by the same processes and controlled by the same sets of genes as the development of the human embryo, then it provides us with a model. If you add into that the, the fact that we have the technology where we can take the laboratory mouse and individually mutate a particular gene of choice in a manner that we want to, we can then perform the experiment. We can individually mutate genes and ask what is the impact on the mouse? What is the impact on the development of the mouse embryo? That sort of work 
uh, was begun. It's an enormous task. There are about 24,000 genes in the mouse embryo. But some years ago, there was a, a coordinated international effort begun to take the mouse and to individually mutate each gene in the mouse embryo and create a different mouse where in each mouse a single gene has been mutated. In fact, it's been completely removed. Those mice are studied with the simple question, how has that affected them? How has that affected their growth, their behavior, their vision, their hearing, their, uh, their biology in the widest possible way? And those studies are, are um, ongoing and have revealed a great deal of information about the role of individual genes in normal bodily function. One of the other things that program has revealed is actually for about one third of all the genes that are mutated in the mouse, you never get a born mouse or the born mouse immediately dies. So that tells us one third of all the genes, that's about, uh, in humans, that, that'll be about 7,000 genes, are necessary for growth and survival of the embryo and fetus through to birth. That's an enormous number. And it's a fascinating number because it means that all of those genes in some way contribute to growth of the embryo. Now, some of them might be contributing to development of the placenta that supports the growth of the embryo, but a great deal of them will be involved in development of the embryo itself. So we refer to these genes as embryonic lethal genes because in their absence, uh, the effect is lethal on the embryo. And if we can identify those genes and study them, it will give us uh, clues as to uh, what genes are important for embryo development. And the flip side of that is if those genes are mutated, they could cause abnormalities in the embryo. They could be the causes of the uh, um, congenital abnormalities we're interested in, in studying. So the DMDD program is studying a modest number, is studying 240 embryonic lethal genes, asking the question, what is the impact of the gene mutation, of removal of this gene? What is its impact on development of the embryo? The basic way we approach that is to take embryos from the mouse in which this gene has been removed and study their structure and ask what is going wrong in development of the embryo? What, what is the effect of removing of that gene on the normal development of the embryo? And we do that by high-resolution imaging of the embryo so that we can understand in remarkable detail the embryo's structure and we can compare it against normal embryos and identify what the differences are. So this is an example of an image we obtain by studying the embryo. This is a mouse embryo. This is its head. This is its tail. Here, you, it's the slice goes through its heart. So this is a slice of an embryo. We collect about 3,000 or so, between three and 4,000 images representing slices through the embryo. Each of these embryos is perhaps one centimeter tall. That gives us a, a, a remarkably high resolution uh, of, of, of the image. 
It means we can convert the data into 3D models where we can, on the computer, see exactly the structure of the different organs and tissues of the embryo, making it much easier to identify where things have apparently gone wrong. Just to get it in perspective, this is the sort of resolution of our image, one to three microns. That's roughly, to put it in perspective, a red blood cell is five or six microns in size. So we are seeing far smaller than an individual red blood cell. And we're seeing that throughout the entire embryo. That enables us to see the structure of organs, obviously, but we can go down to the structure and position of individual nerves in the embryo. So we collect all these images and we then analyze them. All of those images are assessed by uh, anatomists who compare them against normal structures and identify where things have gone wrong. And they flag that information on the images and they record it. And so we have tables. This is a table of an example here. This is a, an example of an image you may not be able to see it, but what they flagged is that the, uh, the vertebrae, the bones of the back, are fused here, and that's abnormal. This embryo actually has lots of different abnormalities. Each one is listed here, and they list them using a standard terminology which is understandable by other biologists and clinicians and is standardized, and so everybody knows exactly what is meant by each term. We do this for multiple embryos for each of the individual genes that have been deleted. And that turns out to be very important because not all the embryos show exactly the same abnormalities, even though they all have exactly the same gene removed. And that's an interesting and on some levels a little puzzling finding, which perhaps we can talk about later. But it's very important that you study lots of embryos from each individual uh, mutation and that you compare the results and, and get a sense of the results over a significant number. We also study the placentas that support the growth of these embryos because um, it turns out that actually a very large proportion, much larger than we expected, and previous research has suggested, a large number of the placentas are also abnormal. And that raises the interesting question of to what degree the abnormalities that we see in these developing embryos after removing a gene, to what extent those abnormalities come from failure of the instru a proper instruction for development of a particular organ or tissue, and to what extent is it that actually it's affected the development and function of the placenta? And through failure in some way of the placenta, that has had a secondary effect on development of the embryo. So that's an area we're very interested in studying. All of this information is immediately, we've obtained it, is put on our website. Because the whole purpose of our project is to provide the sorts of information that other researchers can then use as a starting point for studying individual genes and assessing their role in the developing embryo. We can't follow up each of the individual genes that we identify cause a defect in embryo development. 
But what we can do is do the sort of thing that's very difficult for an individual laboratory to do by pooling our efforts of, of our, the DMDD consortium and by developing the technologies and the expertise to do things like this sort of systematic imaging of embryos and systematic identification of, of defects in the developing embryo. So our project rests on making all of our data open and sharing it with the rest of the scientific community with the aim that we can help kickstart individual research projects tackling individual birth defects. So this, is a, uh, this image is a snapshot of our website. And one of the things you'll see, if you can just read it here in this panel, is we have a search box. That enables you to search all of our data and one of the ways we try and make sure our data is as open as possible is to make sure that search function is as useful as possible to the widest number of people. So if you're interested in the role of individual genes, you can search for a gene and see what effect its mutation has. If you're interested in the development of a particular condition like cleft palate, for example, you can search on the abnormality, cleft palate, and identify which genes cause that. Or if you're interested in a particular structure, how does the liver develop, you can search on the, that particular anatomical term and again get, get an identification of the genes that are involved in development of the liver because they produce abnormalities in the liver when they're, when they're deleted, when they're removed. So by having that sort of complicated search function, it actually gives the simplest way for the widest audience to uh, view our data and understand it. So this is an example of uh, a particular gene that uh, we studied in this project so far. And it turns out to be one of those rare disease genes that I mentioned. Uh, it's responsible for Neulexover syndrome, which causes stillbirth in in humans and is extremely rare and was only discovered in the uh, 1970s. On the left-hand side, this is a normal embryo at the, uh, at the stage that we analyze. You can recognize its head, its eyes, its hands, its feet and tail. This is an embryo at the, exactly the same developmental stage from the particular mutants. So in this case, this mouse, the PSPH1, it's a peculiar name. All genes have rather peculiar names. That gene has been removed from this embryo. It turns out that gene is important for producing the amino acid serine, one of the building blocks of proteins. When you mutate that, that gene or, or remove it, it has profound effects on the embryo. In, in the human Neulaxover syndrome, if you can read this list, there are an enormous number of abnormalities that affect the embryo in producing uh, gross malformations, all of which are reflected in this very strange looking embryo here. And by analyzing it in the level of detail that we do, we can visualize within the embryo and this shows you the sorts of original image data from which those 3D models were obtained. And by studying these in detail, we can flag all of the different things that affect uh, this embryo. And in this particular case, by doing this, 
we've been able to show that in addition to this list of abnormalities that you see here, that these sorts of mutations that cause this syndrome have profound effects on early development of the heart in the embryo. I mentioned amongst congenital defects that uh, one of the commonest are defects that affect development of the heart. When we look at the mouse embryos that we've been studying, the individual different mutations, as I said, we're studying <coughs> 240. We haven't finished studying them all yet. But when we look at the numbers that we have studied, again, defects affecting the heart are incredibly common. So defects that affect the walls that separate the left and right sides of the heart affect 65% of all the embryos that we study. And similarly, defects in other portions, other regions of the heart, such as development of the valves between the chambers of the heart, that's 38%. And this is an example of one of those genes. And as we look in through the 3D model and we go through the head, we'll come down to the heart. And this is the heart here. And this is the left-hand side of the heart and the right-hand side of the heart. And you can see very clearly that the wall that should be separating those two sides of the heart has only partly formed. And there's an enormous gap between the two. That's the sort of abnormality that is, in fact, the commonest abnormality in congenital heart defects affecting babies. And as I mentioned, those sorts of defects affect about 1% of all births. Interestingly, we've also found that a, a high percentage of uh, embryos showing these sorts of heart defects have placental defects. And we're very interested now in, um, in research trying to establish what exactly is the link between those two observations. So how do we go back from our mouse studies to humans? As I've said, sharing our data lies at the heart of that. Our goal is to provide a foundation of image data and, and data on abnormalities which can support our other researchers studying individual abnormalities. That's why the data is open. It's also open because we've studied this data and we've scored what we think are the abnormalities we can see, but we might be wrong. We may have missed things. It's very important that our, all of our data is available to the scientific community because they might interpret it differently. It's also very important that we involve not just basic researchers like ourselves, but we involve clinicians because all of our data, although it's involving mouse embryos, as I've said, has very strong parallels and is useful for clinicians studying um, human developments and human disorders. One of the things we can do, apart from sharing our data, is we can mine our data to try and extract from it bits of information that's not immediately obvious. One of the things we can do is we can say, do any of the sets of abnormalities that we find for a particular mouse gene, do any of those match a syndrome or a set of abnormalities that have been identified in human disease? 
By doing that, we can identify um, candidate genes which might be responsible for the human disease. And it turns out this procedure works, which again, if you like, is, is, a, uh, is proof that turning to the mouse, which is self-evidently very different to a human, but turning to the mouse as an experimental model um, is, is not as crazy as it first sounds. It turns out that of the first 42 gene mutations, gene deletions, the removal of genes that we've studied, 13 match human genetic diseases in a, um, when we compare and mine the data um, for the abnormalities that we see. So that gives us enormous hope that even by studying a relatively small number, remember I said there's probably 7,000 genes we should be studying, we're only studying 240, it's taking us quite a few years to do that. But even that small number is going to reveal a, an enormous new uh, treasure trove of information about potential candidates for uh, human genetic disease and uh, for the genetic basis of birth defects. So I'll finish there just with a slide uh, highlighting where you can find out more information about our project and also to acknowledge that this project is funded by the Wellcome Trust and is a collaboration of very many different research uh, institutes throughout the UK and Europe. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Tim. That was great. Um, so I think we're going to open up questions now to the floor. Does anyone have a question that they would like to ask? Yeah? If it's 13 out of 42, do they, they result in the same uh, defects in a human? Or are there... Are there cases where the same gene can result in a, a different set of defects? That's a, that's a good question. Um, it's a tricky one to answer because um, the, the, the description of the human defects is, if you like, employs um, a clinical vocabulary. Um, and we employ an um, anatomical vocabulary um, which is rather specific for mice. And so we have to, if you like, translate those two languages to find the best match. When we do that, those 13 are matching the sorts of abnormalities seen in the humans. Um, so yes, actually, it's a very good match. Um, so um, that's interesting in lots of ways. It's interesting that uh, apparently the same gene, where, the, where that gene is known, causes the same spectrum of defects in the mouse and the human. Um, it's interesting that, of course, those defects mostly in humans are detected well after birth. We're detecting these in the embryo only th uh, two-thirds of the way through development. Um, so they're present already. So when, you, uh, when you find defects in humans, can you, by genetic analyzing the, the, the gene, go back to that particular, uh, a particular gene to check if it is responsible? Or is that not normal procedure? 
I'm sorry for my question. No, 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 it's fine. That in a very um, poor way. Where the, a num of those 13, 12 are genes which have already been suggested as the genes responsible for the human condition. So the fact that we find the same 12 genes shows that the same genes do the same thing in the mouse as in the human. Um, what's interesting is um, the 13th. The 13th is a gene which has not been flagged anywhere in any human studies as being responsible. Uh, and yet we find it produces a spectrum of abnormalities which match a particular human condition. That suggests that, that gene, mutations in that gene could be responsible for that human condition. And by the same, in the reverse process, where clinicians identify what they think is the likely gene mutation causing a particular uh, disease, the way they can test that is to have people like us create exactly the same mutation in the mouse and ask, what does it do? Does it indeed cause those defects? And we are doing some of that work as well. So it's a two-way process. Uh, are there any more questions from the audience? Thank you. Um, you're looking at uh, taking out individual genes. I know the, the combination of, of all of the genes, if you, were, if you were to do that, would be an enormous number. But do you have suspicions about uh, selected groups of genes and how they might interact as a, as a set? And, or, or are there shortcuts to, to doing that? Or would you have to produce more mice with selected combinations of, of defects? Or am I, am I completely wrong and it's always one for one? No, 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 you're absolutely right. And it's, it's, uh, they're very good questions and good points. <coughs> Our project, we are unable and not indeed funded. The majority of the money for this sort of project goes on producing the mice. Um, we're not funded to be able to go beyond the individual gene mutations. But there is no doubt that um, in many diseases that have a genetic component, the genetic components can be complex. They're not necessarily the product of single gene mutations. They could well be multiple. That's clinical geneticists have known that for a long time. And dissecting out the individual roles of those genes and indeed identifying which groups of genes might be involved together in a particular disease is an important next stage. One of the ways we hope our data will help that is we may show a particular gene, identify a particular gene with a particular type of abnormality, and then researchers can, and, and can, I, can see that from our data. And they can then ask the question, OK, what does this gene do? And are there other genes doing the same thing or helping it to do what it does? The example I showed of that gene that's involved in, metabolism, in synthesis of serine that produces Neulaxover syndrome, actually serine, the last steps in synthesis of serine involve three different proteins. The gene 
we talked about codes for one of those proteins. There are two others. Each of those, when you mutate that gene, produce the same effect. So that's a very clear example where if you know one of the genes in a pathway, in a, some sort of functional pathway, it might be that you can then suggest that some of the other genes might have a similar or contributory effect. So that's a way we hope our data will help, help in that sort of study. have any more questions? Uh, Twitter questions? Yeah. Um, we've got one question from Jamie White. Um, do you analyze the images by eye, or do you, or could you use machine learning or neural networks? That's a very interesting question. Currently, we analyze the images by eye using um, anatomists who are trained to do this and have enormous amounts of experience. There are similar projects to ours uh, underway in different parts of the world. I mentioned there were 7,000 genes and we're only looking at 240, so there are plenty of others to be studied. And a number of those projects are attempting to develop uh, computer-based systems for identifying differences by comparing a data set from one embryo with a normal and asking, can the computer flag the differences? And that works to some extent, but at the moment doesn't have the resolution and can't see the detail. The computer can't reliably understand the sorts of detail that we can see and, and score um, manually. Um, but it's an area that is being developed and we hope in the future it can help automate the process. Leading on from that, uh, Tom Middleton asks, um, do you think there are benefits to crowdsourcing further research? That's an interesting one as well. We, when we began the project, we did discuss the possibility of whether the um, examination of the images looking for abnormalities uh, could be helped by crowdsourcing. Um, we didn't go down that route at the time and chose uh, a particular group of anatomy experts to help us. Um, but I think it's still an open question. Um, and perhaps we could. We could. Perhaps we can go the route that um, astronomy has gone, where they use crowdsourcing to examine images of the, uh, the night sky and, um, and planets and stars and stuff. So I think it's, it's, we don't know the answer, and it's a possibility. Um, I've got a question of my own as well. Um, what do you think the opinion is from your, your kind of specific scientific community on open data and the use of it? Um, I, th I think, uh, is there a consensus opinion? I think the, the general view, uh, which is, um, underpins scientific research is the view that data should be shared, that um, people benefit, you, you do it in order to have your data shared. It's complicated because, um, because of the uh, system of public, um, publishing scientific data. Um, people are often loath to share data prior to publication. Um, 
And that's a problem which I think still uh, bedevils certainly biological research. I think in some other areas like physics, again, they've taken some steps towards getting over that problem and will publish all of their material prior to whether the journal has accepted it or not. So th there are issues still, I think, but the broad principle that data should be shared and made as widely available as possible, I think, is, is agreed by everyone. I have a quick question, um, sort of linked to Hannah's question. Did you have any difficulties when you were initially setting up the project around opening up your data in terms of it being welcomed by other organisations? Uh, no, we didn't. Um, the only difficulties we had were, I think, from our own ignorance. Um, we originally uh, chose a Creative Commons licence um, to encapsulate... Uh, what we thought was an expression of open data, um, which I suspect many people would make this mistake, um, which had a restriction on commercial use. Um, and this was then pointed out to us that in fact, although that sounds intuitively sort of reasonable, it's not open data and is in, in fact an unnecessary restriction, which we've now removed. Um, so, yeah, I think it was our own ignorance of the, uh, of, of the details of open data that were the only problem. Uh, are there any more questions? No? Sorry, I've got one more. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you support um, people that are doing other projects to use your data? Is it intuitive? Um, we try and contact as many people as possible. We publicize our project. We go to all the major scientific conferences we can. Uh, we produce uh, newsletters. We use social media. We publish our research where we can. So we do all of those things to try and let people know we exist. Um, we try and make the website itself as easy to use as possible. We. I think there's a common problem with a lot of scientific websites. There are many these days uh, based on projects because they're producing enormous amounts of data to share where insufficient attention is paid to how that information is actually delivered. Um, and we were very keen to devote an enormous amount of our resources and effort to making sure that although the data was on the website, it was on there in a way in which you could understand and see and navigate very simply. Um, so we do that. Uh, any more questions? No? Okay. Uh, so I think we should all give Tim a round of applause for the presentation. Thank you, Tim. Uh, thanks all for coming. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute. Thank you.